Let's turn in our Bibles tonight, if you would, to the book of Psalms, Psalm 138 this evening. And I'll meet you over there in just a moment. Psalm 138, as we continue our study through the book of Psalms, we make our way now to this encouraging psalm. When we go through trials, in our mind, we know what we're supposed to do. But we find it difficult at times to respond to that trial in the right way, or as it would be according to the truth. So often when we're going through trials, our feelings or our emotions begin to dictate our reactions to the circumstances of life. And it becomes necessary for us to get a hold of those and direct our thinking according to the truth of God's Word. Psalm 138 finds the man of God, David, this psalm is attributed to, in the midst of some sort of a trial. We don't know exactly which trial he was in, although we know from studying the life of David that there were many trials that he faced. On some occasion, David found himself in a trial, and Psalm 138 is instructive because it shares with us the thinking as he processes the situation that he's facing and then directs his thinking towards specifically the promises of God and the ability of God to deliver. Tonight, I'd like to speak to you for just a few moments about praise and promise. Psalm 138, the scripture says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cried, thou answeredst me and strengthenedst me with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. Here is David, and as I mentioned, he's going through a time of trial, and I believe in this psalm we find something about how to get ourselves in the right frame of mind, how to address our spirit even during times of trial. I've divided the psalm for our study tonight into three sections. The first section is found in the first two verses, and I believe these first two verses really, the the psalmist is expressing his intention to praise. He's coming into this trial and he has in his mind, I am going to praise the Lord. I am determined to praise the Lord. Now that's easier said than done when you're in a time of trial, isn't it? Because we know that we should praise the Lord, but boy, our feelings, our emotions are pulling on us in another direction so often. But the psalmist starts right out in verse 1 and he says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. And I want to encourage you tonight that when we praise God, let's praise Him with our whole heart. So often, our worship, our praise is half-hearted. 
So often it is routine. So often our praise is muted and thoughtless. How often do we sing the songs of praise or the songs of worship about our God and our mind is a hundred miles away from what we're singing about? We're mouthing the words because we're familiar with the tune and we know the words by heart or we're uh, blankly looking at the page and repeating what we see, but our mind is somewhere else. Brethren, when we have opportunity to praise God, let us praise Him with our whole heart. The heart is the entire being of man. It is the inner man. It is, uh, it is the idea that He is praising with passion. He's praising with deep thought. He's praising God with every part of His being. Let us beware that our praise can often be offered in a heartless way. And let's watch for this. It sometimes is too easy to say, well, praise the Lord. But inside, we're thinking anything but praise. So he says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. Now, this is interesting, the gods. And of course, we know that There are many gods who are worshipped or that are worshipped in our world. Many people, in fact, the majority of people around us don't worship the true God. Some will give lip service to the God of the Bible, but most, most folks worship other men or themselves or they worship some sort of a religious system. They have some kind of an idea of God in their mind that they're worshiping. And here the psalmist says this, I don't care who's watching. I don't care whether I'm in the congregation of the righteous or the congregation of the wicked. I am going to praise God before whoever is listening. Have you noticed that it's easier to praise the Lord in front of people who have the same sentiment as you? But it's a lot more difficult when you're around people who don't know God. It's so much easier for us to sing the songs of Zion when we're in the house of the Lord among other people who share those songs. But when we're out in the world, it's not quite so easy. Today, there are many people who are worshiping many other things than the God of heaven, but you and I should not hesitate to publicly offer our praise to God, and that even when we're going through a time of trial. Let us be careful to sing our praise in a public way. That means that we have to take our praise of God outside the walls of this building. We have to take our praise of God out into the workaday world, out into uh, the, the society, our community, our jobs, and we have to make an intention. Intentionally, we need to praise God in a public way. He says, with my whole heart, he's going to sing praise before the gods. And then in verse two, he says, I will worship Toward thy holy temple. Now, the idea of worshiping towards the the house of God was that, of course, that was the place where God manifested his presence. That was the place where sacrifices were offered. That was the place where the atonement was made on the day of atonement once a year. That was the place that was the center of worship. And evidently, David was not there, he was not near the tabernacle or near enough to be able to go to the tabernacle. So in this case, he's somewhere else, but he says he is directing his praise towards the Lord's house. He's directing his praise towards the place of worship. This was the sanctuary. This is the place 
where God wanted to be worshipped. And even though David couldn't physically be there, he was, he was directing his prayers towards that holy temple. Now, as I was meditating on this, I thought, what a beautiful picture this is, because all of the house of God, the temple, all revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. Every aspect of that house, every part of the worship service all revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a reminder it is to you and I that when we direct our praise towards God, our praise is directed towards and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of Christ that we can praise God the Father. It is through Christ that we can approach God the Father. And we should be careful that our worship is found in the person of Jesus Christ. What a sad thing it is when people think that they are worthy to worship God in and of their own strength and righteousness. And they try to approach to the presence of God, claiming their own righteousness or their own goodness instead of the offer that God has made that we can come boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the psalmist reminds us that we should worship towards the holy temple. This, of course, for us as New Testament saints does not mean that we need to make sure we're facing towards Jerusalem when we pray, although that's what the Old Testament believers would do. It is a reminder to us that we should always be reminded that our prayer is offered through the merits of Jesus Christ. That is what makes a way for us to come before the Father. With my whole heart, I will sing praise unto thee. I will worship thee. And then he says this in verse 2, and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Now here again, we see this duality, the the truth that God exists as a God of mercy and a God of truth, a God of grace and a God of justice. Here, a God of loving kindness and a God of truth. And oftentimes in our way of reckoning or our way of thinking, we look at God's loving kindness and we look at God's truth or his justice, his righteousness, and we see them as two separate qualities, as somehow, how do these two things fit together? The truth is that you couldn't have pure loving kindness without truth, and you couldn't have real truth without loving kindness. And so God is the perfect embodiment. He's the perfect picture or representation of this, uh, we can only have uh, maybe a measure of loving kindness and a measure of truth. And that's, I think, why we have such a hard time seeing God as a perfect blend of loving kindness and truth. Of course, his loving kindness emphasizes the fact that he is gracious towards us. He's kind, he's loving, he's merciful. And aren't you thankful tonight for the mercy of God? Where would we be without God's mercy? And yet his truth demands that there is a righteous standard. His truth demands that there is a holy God. His truth demands that justice must be carried out. And so God, in his goodness, brought his loving kindness and his truth together for us, again, in the person of Jesus Christ. And here he speaks about God's loving kindness and truth. And the praise of the man of God is revolving around God's loving kindness and God's truth. And this is a reminder to us that these should be primary themes in our worship. No matter what is happening in our lives, 
No matter what circumstances we might be facing, what trials we might be walking through, God's loving kindness and God's truth will never change. They are constant. They are always the same. And so the psalmist says he's praising God for his loving kindness and for his truth. And then he says something so very interesting in in verse 2. He says about God, For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now I want you just for a moment to meditate on that. And think about the fact that the name of God represents his nature, his character, his person. It is the description of who God is. That's why we can worship God, because he's revealed to us his names. He's told us what he's like. He's shared with us his nature, his character. But now the psalmist says this, that God has taken his word and he has magnified it above his name. How important is the word of God? It's of immeasurable importance. And if you want to learn to praise God in times of trial, you'll find that this is the key. The word of God reveals the name of God. The word of God tells us who God is But God has taken great care to magnify his word above his name. You and I ought also to regard God's word with such high esteem. If we would speak reverently of the name of God, and we should, then we should also speak reverently of the word of God. This is why we believe it's important for us as believers to understand and believe that we have a perfect Bible. In our case, in the English language, in the King James Version, the preserved Word of God which is given to us for the purpose of us knowing the God of the Bible. And God has exalted His Word. You say, well, why is it important that we believe that? Why is it important that we would believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of the Word of God? Well, just this, that if we start to question that which God has said then we put ourselves above God's word. And if God has put his word above his name and we put us above God's word, where are we thinking that we're at at that time? You see? So you you may say, well, there are some logical dilemmas with how God could have preserved his word perfectly. I don't deny that there are some difficult things to understand But if we believe the promise of God that he has given us his word and that he's preserved it and that we have it, then we ought to esteem this book. We ought to esteem the word of God in the same way that God says that he has esteemed his word. Now, I'll remind you that God's word contains his promises and his promises, his promises, that is what gives us the opportunity to praise So the the psalmist expresses that he is intending to praise God. He's pointing out that his praise is going to be scriptural, that his praise is going to surround the true character of God as God has revealed himself. And he says this, I intend to praise God. Second of all, in verses 3, 4, and 5, he begins to speak a little bit about a testimony of deliverance. And I believe in this case, the the psalmist is, is looking back. Maybe he's looking back Uh, farther into the past. Maybe he's looking back uh, just a short time and realizing that God is working on his behalf. But notice in verse 3, he says this, 
In the day when I cried, thou answeredst me. What a joy it is to know that God answers. That he hears and that he answers us. Have you ever tried to call someone and they didn't answer your phone? They, they ghosted you, ignored you. Now, I'm, you're all so nice, that's probably never happened to any of you. But it's happened to me. And I'll tell you, it's easy to get a little bit of a complex. I'm calling this person. They, they can't possibly never have their phone on. They can't possibly never be around. I, I'm trying to get in touch with them. Okay, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I'll send them a text and, hey, I'm trying to get a hold of you, but no answer. Wait, what's happening here? Do you know, as a child of God, that will never happen to us when we call out to God. When we cry... He answers. And the word cry that is used here, the idea of him crying out to God is of a cry of desperation. It's a cry of needing assistance, needing help. He's at the end of his rope and he cries out to God. This is the kind of cry that we're not comfortable exhibiting in public. This is not something that we want to see or or that we want others to see in us. We, We like to be cool and and collected and keep things pulled together. But the cry that is described in verse 3 is the cry of desperation. This is the cry of someone who no longer cares what anybody thinks. They just need to know that God has heard. And so he says, I cried and I had the assurance that you answered me. What a joy that God is not silent to us. And it says there in verse 3, In the day when I cried, thou answerest me. Have you ever been tempted to think, God's not hearing? God's not answering. I'm asking and he's not moving. I've, I've put my request before him and nothing is happening. But child of God, if you have come to the throne of grace in the name of Christ, if you have come boldly to that throne bringing your petitions you can be sure that even if you are not aware of his answer, in the day that you cried, he answered. Do you remember that Daniel was praying in the book of Daniel and he was seeking the face of God? And it was several days that he was fasting and praying and then the angel Michael appeared to him and said, when you began praying, I came. But I was hindered because there was a spiritual warfare that was going on. See, Daniel could have been tempted in that instance to think, well, God isn't hearing, God isn't listening, but God did hear and God was moving. And many times the answer that we need from God, he puts it into motion and we don't even realize what he's up to. So the psalmist is assured of this. He cried to God and in that day God answered him. And then he says this, and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. And that, the, the tense of that verb, strengthenest me, is the idea that you strengthened me then, and you strengthened me again, and you strengthened me again, and you're going to keep on strengthening me. It's a, it's a perfect tense. It's the idea that God is going to continue giving his strength. And, and here he says that you strengthened me with strength in my soul. Now, again, 
His praise is coming with his whole heart from the inner man, and the strength that he needs is strength in the inner man. So many times when we come to God with our petition, with our prayer, we are often asking God for physical manifestations of his strength and power. I need more money. I need a provision for this. I need a new job. I need this situation taken care of. I need my health situation dealt with. But what we need more than any of those physical manifestations is we need to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. We need God to give us strength within. If we have God's strength within, we can endure any trial that comes upon us from without. So he says this, when I cried out to you, God, you answered me and you gave me strength within my inner man, within my soul. Sometimes we ask God to deliver us from a a trial and God's answer is to give us strength to endure that trial. In fact, I'm convinced that many times that is the case. That many times God says to us something like he said to the Apostle Paul when he reminded Paul that he was not going to remove from him that thorn in the flesh, but that his grace would be sufficient for him. Praise God that he is able to give us strength in times of challenge and difficulty. Then he goes on in verse 4, and he expresses this, All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. It seems verse 4 and verse 5 are spoken in prophecy of a time when the kings of this earth, who of course many of them believe that they are not under the dominion of God. Isn't it ironic that many of the rulers of this world believe that they are the end-all, be-all, that, that authority stops with them, that they have great power, and they really don't regard the authority of God. I think of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar became very arrogant and proud, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm all of these things, and you're going to worship me. I was just reading the book of Daniel not too long ago, in case you're wondering. So I'm going to build this image, and of course that image was revealed to him in a dream, and Daniel, the man of God, interpreted that dream, and Nebuchadnezzar took that and said, oh, look at me, I'm going to make this image, and I'm going to have people worship me. And God said, Nebuchadnezzar, you don't know. And God cut him down. God humbled him, brought him to a place where he ate grass out of the field like a cow. God brought him to the end of himself. And then he gave him an opportunity to repent. You see, the day is coming when all the kings of the earth are going to recognize the true authority of our God. You do understand tonight that our God is sovereign. You do understand that he is, present tense, the king of kings and lord of lords. Not all regard his authority, but his authority is absolute. He is definitely the king of kings. And he says this, one day the kings of the earth shall praise thee. One day all of the earthly authorities will be compelled to regard the wisdom of God's words. One day they will be put in a place where all they can say is, Lord, you deserve praise because you are right and you are righteous. Now that's 
that's a, a wonderful thought to think, especially when we think about some of the things that are going on in the world and some of the wicked rulers who are flexing their muscles against God and His ways. And you understand that those rulers will be brought to the place one day, as the book of Philippians says, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think it's apparent to us in this passage that for the psalmist, David, this is something that is yet future tense. This is something that is yet down the road. We would say the same thing. This is something that is yet future tense. This is something that we expect to happen one day. He continues the thought in verse 5, and he says, Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Uh, It's an interesting thought. One day these kings of the earth will be compelled to sing a song of praise to the Lord for his matchless ways. They will be brought to a place where they will have to venerate him, respect him, and even sing a song of worship to him because his glory is great and he is without compare. Now, I don't know about you, but I am looking forward to that day. I am looking forward to the day when these kings of the earth are brought to the place where they are humbled before the holy God and they need to recognize who he is. So the psalmist has this view and and I want to point out to you that this perspective of what is coming in the future or of the victory that God has promised that is yet in the future that is coming can give us a real perspective in the times of trial. Because in these days, in these times of trial in which we live, we go through these circumstances, sometimes it feels as, as if the world is unhinged, as if, as if, you know, how is God going to bring anything good out of this? I don't understand what is going to happen. But you can be assured of this, that God is going to get praise, that He is sovereign, He is worthy of worship and praise. And if He should be praised then, He should be praised now which seems to be what is forming the thought of the psalmist as he's thinking about his own praise of God. So he speaks about this intention to praise, and then he shares his testimony of deliverance, both past and future. And then in verses 6, 7, and 8, he talks about his confidence that God is at work. And for you and I, this confidence that God is at work is one of those anchoring truths that helps us to get perspective when we most need perspective. I, I think I've mentioned to you that I get uh, hopelessly seasick. If I get out on the ocean and lose sight of land, I'm usually okay as long as I can see the land. But once I can't see the land anymore, I'm a goner. And it, it goes downhill really fast for me. And somebody says, well, take... Uh, what is it, Dramamine? Take some Dramamine. Um, well, yeah, I usually wait too long. And then I see the Dramamine going down in the water and realize there went my hope. So, but when you're sick, when, you're, when your head is spinning, one of the things that does help is to keep your eyes up and to find a fixed point. That's why for me, If I can see the land, I'm usually okay. But once I get away from the land, I'm I'm in trouble. Because if I can fix my eyes on 
that land and, and that's not moving. The boat is moving. The waves are moving, but I can see the land. Okay, that gives me something that gives me my bearings, I guess, in my inner ear. And I, I, I don't feel great, but I'm, I'm able to hold it together. But if I lose that, it gets bad. Do you know that's how it is in our spiritual lives? If we lose sight of the anchoring truths that God has given to us, then we, we have no ability to keep our feet under us. We're going to find ourselves in a very difficult place. One of those anchoring truths is that no matter what happens, God is at work and he has not lost control of the situations that are, that are encountering me. In verse 6, he says this, Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Though the Lord be high, you do know he's high. He's high and lifted up. He's so high and lifted up that he is far above us. He is way beyond what we could even fathom. I'm telling you, we know the things that God says about himself and his word, but that is only just a picture or a small glimpse of who he is. He is so high and lifted up that, honestly, we couldn't totally comprehend him Obviously, there is no one that is higher than the Lord. That means that he would be fine where he is if he never spoke to us. If if we never came to him, he is not affected by that in the sense that he does not need us. Now, we desperately need him, but he does not need us. And yet, despite the fact that our God is so high... The scripture says in verse 6, he has respect unto the lowly. Respect. That word respect or having respect means he looks upon us. It means he regards us. He looks at us as individuals and he sees us. This is almost overwhelming to think about. For us, it's so easy for us to lose perspective You get up in an airplane high above the earth. You can see the little cars driving around. And and you can't see the people anymore. You can't make them out. They're just little specks. And then at some point, they disappear from view altogether. And yet our God is much higher than that, to use an analogy of altitude. And yet to him, we are individuals. And not just individuals, but we are significant to him. He has respect unto us. He has respect unto the lowly. So it is important that we recognize, that we remember, that we be reminded that we are lowly. We get too much of a big head with our God. We start thinking of ourselves as being really something. And if you need a little bit of a reality check, just take some time to compare yourself against God. You think you're strong? You've got nothing on him. You think you're smart? (laughs) You have nothing on him. It, It always cracks me up when people start to boast about how they've figured God out. 
and they throw out these riddles or these ideas of how they think that they're going to back God into a corner and they're going to reduce God to something that they can explain and they're going to, they're going to talk about Him and then explain Him away and prove to people that God doesn't exist. What a fool. You say, Pastor, that's, a, that's an abrasive word. It is, but that's what God said. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That's a man who is boasting in his wisdom, his strength, his ability. And God, who sits in the heavens, will laugh. He will have that man in derision. But see, the man who is lowly, the man who recognizes his proper place before God, this is the man that God will have respect to. This is the man whose life God will work in. He he goes on there in verse 6 to remind us that the proud he knoweth afar off. That means God spots the proud man from a million miles away. He comes strutting in, thinking that God is going to pay attention to him. God's going to have nothing to do with him. God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. You say, well, I need God in this time of trial. Well, then humble yourself. Regard yourself in the way that you truly are. Uh, Make yourself lowly before God. In your mind, get get a proper view of who you are. The proud man is full of himself. He believes he's going to be accepted of the Lord for his goodness. He thinks he can come into the presence of God and God is just going to say, Oh, well, I'm so lucky that this guy came to talk to me. That's not how God's going to respond to the proud man. God is not fooled by his haughty act. Then the psalmist goes on in verse 7. Remember, we're talking about his confidence in God's work. He clearly sees himself in the place of a man who is lowly, of a man who is willing to lower himself before God. And you might be reminded that David was a man who had some accomplishments. He was a man who had some position. He was a man who had some wealth. He was a man who had done some things, and yet he said, I'm lowly before God. And he's confident that God is going to help him at this time So he says in verse 7, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Reminded of what Job said, Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. If you have a little trouble in your life, or a lot of trouble in your life, welcome to the party. We're all here in this troublesome place. There's plenty of trouble to go around. And the psalmist says, I'm walking in the midst of trouble. How often could that be a description of our Christian life? I'm walking in the midst of trouble. I'm walking in the midst of trial. Trouble is a reality of life even for the righteous man in whom God delights. Don't buy this idea, this doctrine, that if you just love God enough and you serve him enough, then you'll be delivered from all troubles, and you'll, you'll have smooth sailing, and everything will be wonderful. No, no, God never promised to get us out of every trouble. He never said that we would never have any trials or difficulties. We can walk oftentimes in the midst of trouble, and I think you understand, I certainly have experienced it, that when we are in the midst of trouble, that trouble can weigh us down, and it can cause us 
to be tempted to faint. It can cause us to think, you know, is it really worth going on? Is it, is it worth continuing on in this way? Though I walk in the midst of trouble. When we're carrying trouble and we're walking through trouble, we can be tempted sometimes to think, well, I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to give up. I'm going to stop living for the Lord. I'm getting tired. So what is God going to do for us when we're walking in the midst of trouble? Well, he says this, thou wilt revive me. To revive means to give life. It means to quicken or to give strength. It's the idea of coming alongside and encouraging, of breathing new life into another person, of energizing them, of giving them the ability to go on, to continue pressing forward. Praise God, what the psalmist is talking about is not the capacity of a brother or sister in Christ to do this, although the scriptures speak about that and the important function of the brotherhood within the family of God. But what the psalmist is talking about is the Lord reviving him. The Lord coming alongside and strengthening and encouraging and helping him. Thou wilt revive me. Have you ever experienced God giving you life and vitality even during a season of trouble? And you knew that the Lord was with you? That is a blessed experience. Praise God for that. He goes on in verse 7. He says, Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. And the idea here is that God is going to deliver, that God is going to stretch forth his hand. That that idea of stretching forth the hand means that God is going to move on his behalf. God is going to get involved. God is going to reach out the hand, and he's going to be involved in that situation. He's going to begin working and moving. And what a wonderful thing it is when we see God work, when we see God bring his strength to bear upon our situation, when we know that it's something that we cannot do, we are completely dependent upon him, and then we see God stretch forth his hand. This is what we long for. We long for God to work in this way. God will not withhold his power in rescuing his child. The wicked may rage against the people of God, but you and I have a strong and mighty deliverer. You know that the wicked are raging against the people of God today, don't you? It's happening. It's happening all around the world and it's happening in our country. It's happening in our culture. Our culture is quickly moving to set itself against anyone who claims to follow the truth of God. It's happening right in front of our eyes. The enemy is raging. But believe me, brethren, our God will deliver. Our God is strong. He's going to work on our behalf. Praise God for that. And thy right hand shall save me. And that's just that idea that he's going to reach out and grab us. With, with the arm of his authority, with the arm of his power, he can pull us out of that place of peril. You're not able to deliver yourself, but he is very able to save. He's proven it over and over again. He snatched his people out of Egypt. He brought them out of the most powerful country with the most powerful army and the most powerful king. And God said, I want my people. No, God, I'm not going to give them to you. And God said, well, I'll show you who's boss. 
And he did it. Over and over and over again, God has proven that he can save, he can deliver his people. You and I can trust him. I don't know what kind of difficulty you're going through, what kind of trial you're facing, but I know this, his power has not diminished. He's still the same God. And then he brings us to this encouraging thought in verse 8. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. And what he's referring to here is that when, when he says the Lord will perfect, he means the Lord is going to bring it to an end. The Lord is going to complete. The, the Lord is going to finish that which he has started. This is very similar to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, where we're reminded that he is going to finish that which he has started. He's going to complete that work in us. Praise God for this. God is not going to half deliver us or half save us. He's going to deliver you all the way. He's going to perfect that which concerneth me. And many times... The completion or the perfection of God's work in me is going to take place in the midst of those trials. It's going to take place during that time of troubling, that that difficulty that I'm going through. I want so badly to be out of that, and yet God is working in my life through that trouble to perfect something in me. And the psalmist has this confidence. See, he's sure that God is up to something, that God is working And his confidence is really placed, verse 8, upon God's mercy. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Praise God, he's a merciful God. Praise God, his mercy always endures. You can count on that about God. He's a merciful God. I'm thankful for that. Where would we be without the mercy of God? He says, your mercy endures You and I can count on God's mercy being poured out upon us. I mean, honestly, what we deserve is God's justice. What we deserve is punishment for our sin. What we deserve is to be cast away from the Lord. But we have experienced His mercy, and we will experience His mercy, and we can count on His mercy to continue on. And then he finishes in verse 8 with this phrase, "...forsake not the works of thine own hands." He prays this prayer based on the knowledge of God's promise that God will not forsake His work. He is praying according to the will of God. It's good for us to pray according to the will of God. And and it is according to God's will. If you pray, God, forsake not the works of thine own hand. You know what the works of God's hand is? Well, if you're a child of God, you're one of those works. That's what He's up to. And it's appropriate for you to pray, God, please don't forsake what you're doing in my life. I may not understand it. I may not comprehend all that you're up to, but I have this confidence that you are working. And I'm asking you, based on who you've told me that you are, based upon your promise not to forsake the works of your hand, there is an expectation on the part of the psalmist that God will finish what he has started. And this is an anchoring truth for us. God is at work, and God will finish what He has started. Praise God. If it was up to us to finish that work, we would fail. We couldn't complete it. We don't have the strength. We don't have the endurance. We don't have the wisdom. 
But our God will surely finish everything that he has begun. And because of this, he is worthy of our praise, no matter what the circumstances may be today. He's still the same God. His promises are still the same. And we can still worship him in the same way.